Shabu comes and addresses us. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Maybe seated. Thanks, Nate. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for this teaching. We pray for those of us who are disciples of yours this morning. You will reveal more of what it means to pray. And for those of us who don't know you or are skeptical or maybe even seeking you, would you reveal more of what prayer is in the Christian life? And Jesus, we do pray your kingdom come and your will be done this morning as we continue this time of worship to hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, it, ha- it happens that when we planned this uh, prayer thing, uh, this prayer week and everything, uh, somehow God in his providence uh, has planned it that it actually lands on uh, the National Day of Prayer. So around Australia, and uh, there is an actual day called the National Day of Prayer, and it, for some uh, traditions they call it the season of Lent, and they begin on this Sunday, this morning. Uh, actually in our nation's capital right now, uh, in a little while, there's actually going to be a prayer time led by some of the Christians in, um, in, uh, in Canberra. Now, when we think about prayer, it's not like Christians have some sort of monopoly on it. Um, when we think about prayer, prayer is actually in most religions. Uh, Muslim friends, they actually uh, pray, uh, they face their most holiest site, and five times a day they pray, uh, if they're really religious. Then there are those who are Hindus or Hindu friends who would uh, actually wake up each morning and they would go to their particular deity that they worship and they offer prayers and chants or they may go to the local temple or maybe even to the local temple up here in the basin just up around the corner from us. Then if you are a Buddhist person, you may not call it prayer, you may call it meditation, but the heart of it is to try to get your inner being center and focus on oneself and find peace and security, and be a positive influence around you. What about those of us who actually are very openly atheists or don't proclaim that they actually pray? And the majority of atheists would say they don't pray, but 
There was an interesting article that came out a few months ago in the Huffington Post. A guy by the name of Jerry Dewitt. Jerry was a uh, pastor in America, and then he says he had a conversion moment where he became an atheist. Uh, and he became a, a voice for the atheist. He actually wrote a book uh, talking about it. But a significant uh, event happened in his life. I think one of his uh, family members, a significant thing came. He got a phone call. Now, being a pastor background, what his normal practice was to pray, and he was struck by something. And then he wrote this down. He said, immediately, immediately, even though I believe that nothing fails like prayer to actually get anything done, there are personal benefits to the very act of praying itself. These benefits have been clearly documented by physicians, psychologists, and philosophers in countless books over the last few decades. My approach is different. There's neither uh, clinical nor scholarly. I'm simply asking the question of how to pray when you're an atheist. Because I loved to pray as a Christian, and I still love praying as a non-believer. This is coming from someone who proclaims to be an atheist. Now look, here's the reality. Prayer, in many ways, uh, affects a lot of people. We all pray, and, and you may even see it on the sporting field. Someone, someone usually points to the, you know, uh, up to the sky when they get a touchdown or some sort of goal, or you know, I hope to do my best. It's like a prayer. It's just a thing that we throw out. But what is the difference about prayer if you are a follower of Jesus? Now, in these words that we just heard, Jesus is actually not giving some sort of superficial teaching and saying, if you want, these are actually commands. These are directives. These are things that he's teaching in specifically to his disciples. Now, this little prayer that we know and heard uh, is actually part of a bigger chain of teachings. You can actually read about it in Matthew 4, 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you have never read it, I would deeply encourage you to take time to meditate on it. But I guess my summary is to say uh, what it is, is Jesus is specifically teaching his disciples, and there are other other people there, but I think specifically his disciples. And he's saying, if you are a person of God, a person of the kingdom, a follower of mine, this is what it looks like. This is how your life should reflect. And it was much more than just moral ex- ex- exhortations because Jesus in a lot of his teachings in Son of the Mount, he goes much deeper. He talks quite often about the heart. And so he comes uh, to this section we've just heard and he specifically starts, before he jumps into this teaching about, t- um, about prayer, he wants to lay a foundation and he talks about giving to the needy. But that foundation really sets into play what it means to be a disciple and to pray. And that is, the focus is always an audience of one. That the audience is always God. The audience is always the Father. The audience is always one. In verse, chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, it talks about giving specifically. And then he goes into prayer. Now, I find this interesting because he doesn't go straight into the application. He goes to set the foundation first. And he actually makes it very clear, if you are going to be someone who's going to be praying, there are in many ways two ways to pray. There's the prayer of a hypocrite, or a prayer of a Gentile, or if you're praying as a follower, a disciple. See, in verse 5, he says something really interesting. He talks about uh, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners. They may be seen by others. 
um, cut, it's, for us, it's kind of weird to listen to that because we don't really live in that world. But back in those days, if you were a disciple, a religious follower, it was quite normal to do what he's doing. To pray openly and publicly was a way of saying we are a spiritual person. We are showing off in some sense. Even in those days, they had the houses and the roofs were flat, mostly. And often what would happen, a lot of the activity would happen on the roof. And part of that would be going up and praying. And Jesus actually unpacks that further and says, hey, listen, don't be like these guys who are showing off. If you want to use our modern day kind of language, it's like saying when we are about to have a quiet time, when we're praying, all those kind of things, we set up our coffee in one corner, we set up a Bible in front of us with a really cool trendy journal, and then we have a nice picture all set up, beautiful picture, perfectly outlined. Then we take a photo, we put it on Facebook and say, hashtag having a quiet time. And we see how many likes we may get from it. Now, I've done that. (laughs) I've read this. I've been deeply convicted. And not to say you can't do that as a witness. I get that. That's fine. But what I'm saying, this is the idea here. What these uh, disciples or these... um, these hypocrites, these, uh, these people who are pretending to be very religious outwardly are being, in their own life, actually being hypocritical. And that's outlined later when it talks about forgiveness, I think. So Jesus is saying, hey, listen, your audience is always an audience of one. And he talks about it in, in verse 6, as I said, you know, the idea was to pray publicly, but he talks about an inner room. In those days, the house uh, had a, a room, an inner room. It's like saying, uh, that's where no one can see you. But there is someone watching, there is someone listening, and it is God the Father. And Jesus even goes even further and once again explains, don't be like the hypocrites and don't be like the Gentiles. These were the non-Jews. They were also known for praying. They would pray to their deities or whoever they were offering prayers. And often it was kind of like chanting or saying as many words as they can in the hope to get their favor and blessing. It would be like us saying that in our day and age, that if you say these particular words, if you say it this way this many times, this kind of uh, language, then God will somehow bless you. But not only that, he's saying, be careful, don't talk too much. You can remember who you're speaking to, and we'll come back to that in a sec. But not only that, in speaking, don't be like God does it. God already knows what you want. The Father in heaven already knows. It's not like as we're praying, our Father in heaven is uh, ruling and reigning. It's not like all of a sudden he goes, oh, Shabu just prayed. Oh, I totally forgot about that. Next time I need to write a sticky note and stick it on my window just to remember. God already knows. So why pray? Nathan mentioned this earlier. It's an act of dependence. It is a way of saying I'm dependent on you. It's bringing it before him. And then in verses 9 to 13, we have probably one of the most famous prayers or teachings on prayer that we know of. I mean, maybe you've grown up in a, in a culture or maybe in a church context where this was part of your normal practice on a Sunday. You said these prayers. Actually, even this Sunday morning, there are churches as part of their service, as part of their corporate time, they will actually recite these prayers together. And maybe you've even read this often. Maybe you already know it, memorized, and it's very dangerous for us to look at this and go, oh yeah, I know this. It's very easy for us to look at this teaching and go, oh, I've heard this before. Friends, can I encourage you this morning, don't lose sight of the beauty and wonder of what Jesus is saying here to all of us, even today, in 2016. 
And I love how Jesus begins his teaching on prayer to his disciples. How he formulates something. It's not just saying, hey, you do these things and you say it this way, this is what happens. He's saying, if you want to pray, if you're going to do some prayer, this is the format, this is the formula, this is the structure. And I love where he begins. He begins with the right focus. I think when we think about prayer, often the prayer idea and the prayer life is ultimately focused on ourselves. Most other religions, when they pray, ultimately it's really focused on themselves. The Muslim friend is praying in the hope that they will find favor with God. It's ultimately about them. Even the most atheist person who just said that he's praying knows it's a good thing. It's ultimately about him. But the Christian prayer, a disciple's prayer, is very different. I think often we have this idea, like the Michael Jackson song, you know. I'm talking about the man in the mirror. We look at ourselves straight away. But God, Jesus doesn't start there. He begins by stepping away, by stepping out. He brings us to a position of worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Friends, I I think... um, In many ways, uh, this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, uh, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this idea of the Father is something that we take very flippantly and we take very lightly. We just sort of just assume, oh yeah, Father. But see, for those who are hearing this teaching by Jesus, in particular the disciples, it would have been mind-blowing for them to even comprehend what he just said. A few years ago, uh, I was involved in campus ministry and we used to go out witnessing to people from on campus at Monash Uni. Uh, and there was uh, a strong Jewish community at Monash Uni and I had the privilege to spend some time to talk to a Jewish student there. And I'm really excited because I'm like, here's a Jewish guy, he's the people of God. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to convert him to, to, to the Messiah. And so here I am, and I'm, I'm explaining the gospel. I'm talking about the Messiah. He's looking at me more and more confused. We're going back and forth about different things. And I said to him, I said these lines. I said, we worship the same God. We worship Yahweh, the Lord God. And he's like, I said, and our Father. And he's going, I beg your pardon? I said, I said we worship God, our, our Lord God, our, our Father. He goes, I would never call our God our Father. That is so disrespectful. Do you know who you're talking to? This is the creator of the universe. And he even wrote the word for Yahweh, the Lord, and he wouldn't even put the word in properly because he said we would never utter these things. Friends, I think on this side of the cross, it's very easy for us who are disciples to lose this idea, to, to just become blasé about it and never ponder the think in the reality that we, for those of us who know Jesus, those of us who are disciples, can come to the creator of the universe and call him Father. The language is even more stronger than saying Abba. It's like saying Dad. It's a beautiful thing. But in light of that, the other thing is, don't forget what's connected to this. Say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
the other side of the, 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 the wonderful thing about the cross and the empty tomb, and we're on the other side of it for those of us who are followers of Jesus, sometimes I think when we come in prayer, we also lose the idea of the reverence and majesty and mightiness of who God is. I think we also need to be reminded as Jesus is reminding his disciples, yes, come to your Father. Be in communion with him. Talk to him. But don't forget your place and where he sits. Come both in, as, a, as a child to your father, but remember he is the almighty king. Hallowed be your name. It is a, a view of reverence. And then Jesus goes in, in light of having this right picture of who God is, then you come with this petition and the petition even actually doesn't go to oneself. It's not even personal prayer. It is a petition directed at God for his purposes to be achieved in the world just as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's saying, God, just as you reign, just as you rule over all the world, as your things are happening in heaven, we pray for the same things to happen here in this world. Expand your purposes. Expand your kingdom. And then the reality comes in when we live this side. There's this tension on this side of the cross where we see many tragedies. We see things happening. And there's this tension of the now and not yet. Jesus has conquered sin and death. He reigns. God is expanding his kingdom. Evil is getting killed day after day by God's power, but some things aren't because now and not yet. It won't fully come into fruition until Jesus returns. But we are called to pray. We are called to pray and petition our Father in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on this earth. God, we want you involved. We want your will to be done for your purpose, for your glory. And so with that and foundation, Jesus continues to go into three types of provision, I've called it. Firstly, in verse 11, he talks about physical provision. Then he talks about a relational, we're talking about repentance, talking between God and us. And finally, the, the, the idea of provision for wisdom and protection in spiritual battle. Uh, verse 11 is quite challenging because... When we think about it, I think as Christians, we might automatically go to that bit, but this language here is to say, hey, hey, listen, Heavenly Father, I am deeply dependent on you for everything. The language of daily bread is not just a sort of a term, but in that context, it's like saying, hey, for everything, including what's happening tomorrow, I need you to provide for me. And this is quite challenging because if you look at the life of the disciples, many of them dropped everything to follow their Messiah. And then Jesus goes to the cross. They're a bit discouraged. Jesus, risen from the dead, it comes back. And then he tells them, listen, go and proclaim this truth, this gospel, this kingdom of mine. Go proclaim it to everywhere, all corners of the earth. I want you to go. The Holy Spirit comes, empowers them, and many of them drop everything to follow this call. I can just imagine the disciples of the early days actually literally believing for their provision for the next day. Look, we live in Western, Western world. 
we may have trials with finances and so on, but many of us have never really thinking about the next day and God's provision of it. Friends, do you know that everything comes from God? It's his gracious provision for us. Even as you sit here and breathe. God could just stop that in one minute. And I think in our Western world, we're very uh, spoilt by this. So the question I have is, when I, when I think about this, do we ask God for our every need, or do we just ask God for those big things? You know, when things are going really bad, when the business is struggling, that's when I get involved in asking God. When, you know, crisis hits the family, that's when I'm asking God. But just the thought of, as you wake up, maybe as you're sitting down and having your coffee and going, God, provide me for what I need today. That's the kind of view we have. And I think the reason why we do that, we forget that, is in many ways, particularly in our Western context, we've got this idea of, we've got this. I don't need your help. God, I don't want to bother you with the little stuff. But friends, it all matters how you view God, doesn't it? Our Father. If you view him as your Father, you come to him with every need. But I think we as little kids sometimes say we don't want help. My beautiful little daughter, Lucy, I love it a bit. She's cheeky as. She's at the stage where she wants to do everything by herself, including tying a shoelace together, which she has no idea. One of my favorite things to watch, which is probably cruel, but I, I let my daughter, and she goes, oh, I'm going to put the shoes on. I'm like, okay, fine, go for it. She squishes her feet in, and then she's trying to tie the laces, and I'm like, you have no clue. And I want to step in and go, hey, can I help you with that? And she's like, no, no, no. I said, Darling, I, I really want to help you. No, no. And eventually, after a few minutes and me stressing out because we're going to be late to somewhere, I turn around and she goes, she likes some help. No, no. And then finally she goes sheepishly, Daddy, can you help? And I think sometimes we are like these little kids who are, God, I've got this. I don't need your help. Friends, that's not the kind of relationship Jesus is talking about when we are dependent on our Heavenly Father. Because our Heavenly Father is involved in everything, every aspect of your life. And He wants you to ask. He wants you to ask and petition Him. And with that heart of dependence, with that reality of we are dependent on God, we're asking for the daily bread, we now go a bit more deeper in our relationship with. Where this prayer now turns relationally even more deeper and talks about this idea that when we have this glorious view of God, when we see who he is and when we are dependent on him, then we realize who we are and we see what shortfalls are in us. And we're exposed of that. And we can come to him. And we can ask for him to forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. or It's talking forgiving our debts just as we forgive those who have harmed us or sinned against us. It is a cry for help. It is a cry for mercy. But it is also a cry shaped out of a lifestyle because this grace lifestyle, this idea of God forgiving you has shaped everything and how you live, particularly in relation to others in this context. And later on, Jesus actually finishes it off this section by saying it again. Hey, listen, if you want forgiveness, if you want to experience the grace of God, but you're not forgiving others, God will not forgive you. There's strong language. And I think sometimes when we think about forgiveness, 
When we think about repenting as the Christian language to say, hey, God, I've, I've gone this way, I shouldn't have, I'm turning around now, we forget that actually it's a gift to be able to do that. I think sometimes when we uh, see this idea that we've sinned, I think there's two ways to look at it. One way is to look at it as a prideful way, and we, we don't want to admit it, so we want to hide it and, and, and sort of blame other people. The other way is to turn around and go, if we don't see this sin, we, we feel really bad and annoyed at ourselves and angry, and so that we, we see this picture of God sitting up in heaven in some big throne, really angry, fuming at the mouth at you because you have dropped the ball again, and so we don't want to go and, and repent. We don't want to ask for forgiveness. But friends, if we see the start of these words of father our father in heaven if we see him as our father we have the great privilege to come to him every time anytime we drop the ball in sin because we can he's our father he's our loving dad last week we last sunday night we had the great privilege to have a peter adam come and talk about the cross in prayer and he, he made this wonderful line when he said it's good to repent Our Heavenly Father loves to forgive. So do it. I just thought, what a great reminder, a simple reminder of what it means to be in a relationship with the Creator of the universe, much as our Father, we can actually come to Him. And when we do that, don't you see that we actually uh, experience the grace of God over and over again? In light of that, that should move us to express that same grace to those who may even harm us. And specifically when Jesus is talking to his disciples, many of these men would be totally destroyed for their, for their commitment to Jesus. They'll be hated, they'll be run out of town. And some even died. But Jesus is saying, forgive them. Just as you pray for forgiveness, make sure you're also forgiving those who have hurt you, who have sinned against you. And friends, if we ourselves are not practicing this we may be coming to our father and asking for forgiveness but we ourselves are not forgiving those who have sinned against us there's going to be a blockage you're wondering why you're feeling distant from god you're wondering why you're not connecting with god is there just a question i have is there a resentment is there hurt is there bitterness against someone or people who've hurt you because in that sense you're actually not giving yourself room to receive that grace that God has for you. So turn to your Heavenly Father. Ask for forgiveness, but also forgive those who may have sinned against you. And then we have this idea of being alert. Because I think Jesus goes into about talking about forgiving and then you forgive others and then he gets into lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I love this because this was really challenging for me as I meditated on this this week. I don't know if you realize as Christians, particularly in our Western context, I think we get a little bit comfortable. This side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, this is not peacetime. As God's kingdom, that language, it's like war language. God is advancing his kingdom. That is war language. His purposes are being achieved. But in light of that, we need to understand in our own personal walks... It is not peacetime, it is war. There are two things at war. Your flesh saying, hey, don't listen to the Spirit, don't listen to those things, follow me, and then you've got the enemy who's also trying to tempt. 
So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is not like God's going to lead you into temptation. He's saying, hey, you're praying and asking the Heavenly Father, keep me close to you. Let me not run into sin. And deliver us from evil, in particular the, most, the devil, the evil one. Friends, this is a wonderful prayer if you meditate on it. This is a good reminder for us. That prayer is also going into, there's a movie that came out last year, I think, called The Prayer Room or The War Room. The War Room. Thank you, Keith. When we go into prayer, that's what's going on. We are going into the war room. We're petitioning the one who's, uh, using American terms, the commander-in-chief. But friends, I hope you see what a beautiful prayer it is to consider that we can pray this. But I want you to know this is only possible because of Jesus Christ. Because if it wasn't for Christ, you and I could not come and say these prayers. If it wasn't Christ, we cannot be disciples because Jesus is the one who has now made it possible. Because of the gospel, we can actually come and approach this prayer with great joy because we've been adopted, we've been made children of his. And not only that, now we can say we are utterly dependent on the creator of the universe, not just as God, but also as our Father. We can come and worship. Isn't it wonderful to meditate on God's word? So at this point is when a pastor says to you, so how is your prayer life? Most of us look down, some of us look up, some of us, I don't know what she was talking about. Now, the guilty way might be, look, you know, we thought you guys aren't praying enough and you might want to build up your prayer life and you want to petition and ask forgiveness. So what we're going to do this week is that um, you go in and that little room, the library, is going to become the confessional room. And we're going to close the door and you can open the slot and one of us will forgive you for your sins. Now, if we ever do that, please fire us. We would not be doing that. This is not a guilty thing, friends. I want you to think through what it means to pray. And if you're struggling in your prayer life, come to your heavenly Father. He already knows. And he's not going to chuck you out. He says, hey, I know you're struggling. I still love you. Come. Let's work on this together. Let's pray together on how to grow in our prayer life. So approach him. Secondly, some things to consider. Who are you praying to? Are you praying to an audience of many or are you praying to an audience of one? And in light of that, when you pray, is your perspective right? Is it all about you, which is fine, bringing it before your father, but is it also about his kingdom come, his will be done, his purpose is to be achieved in the world? The other thing to consider, when we pray, do you just pray during those special moments? Lunch, dinner, small group? Or is this part of your everyday language? So some things to consider as we wrap up this morning. When you're praying, uh, can I encourage you uh, to, as I said, uh, find uh, your focus on the audience of one. And to do that, here's some practical things to consider. Find your little room, your closet, whatever that is. Uh, I've got a good mate of mine who has kids uh, and he uh, has tried to do the prayer thing at home and kids interrupt and, you know, you don't want to just say, stop, get thee, I'm talking to the father, you know, and the kids can't approach the father. You want to be loving. So what he's done is he started to, uh, he told me this funny story, I'll just quickly say. He said, oh, you know, I really want to pray and be all spiritual. I think Phil mentioned this earlier where he would get up early morning and he found that he would just end up be drooling on the Bible by the end of two minutes because he'd fall asleep. 
So what he started doing was simply said, hey, his closet became the outdoors. So he would grab his uh, little kid, put them in the pram, go for a walk around the block, and he would talk out loud. And he said people thought that he was weird, but that's okay. So that's something to consider. Find your room, whatever that is. Cut out the noise. We live in a world that says noise, noise, noise. Cut out the noise. What does that look like for you? Go for a walk. The other thing is to consider, read prayers. The Psalms are fantastic. If you're finding it hard to focus, Peter Adam talked about this last week, pick a Psalm, read it out loud. Focus on that, focus on God, get your perspective right and then seek him with the things that are on your heart. The other thing to consider is maybe journaling your prayer. Now, that's a hard thing for guys, I think, more than girls. Girls tend to like getting the really cool, nice journals and writing and stuff. <laughs> guys struggle. Find whatever that works for you. That might be typing it, maybe on your phone. I know someone is doing it on their phone at the moment. Journal it. The idea is because journaling, it helps you stop, slow down, and forces you to write out exactly what you're thinking through. And you might use the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer more appropriately to model what you're praying for. So here are some things to consider. Friends, a God-centered prayer is actually a gift from our Father. And when we pray to him as disciples, uh, we are understanding that because of Jesus, this is possible in light of that, we can actually completely be dependent on him in all aspects of our life. Because a God-centered prayer is actually uh, relational. It's not just some sort of religious practice. And it should also be normal. What Jesus says to his disciples is when you pray. He doesn't say if, maybe, that time, when. It was normal. It's expected. But also it ultimately comes down to it's anchored in him. So church, may we continue to grow. We, we may continue to grow. As the pastors have said earlier, we continue to pray there will be a church that prays, not just special moments continuously. And in light of that this morning, we're not actually going to sing a song as our normal practice. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer. What I want you to do is, as I read it, either you can quietly listen or you can follow through. It's up here on the screen. First, I'm going to read it slowly. And each line, I'm just going to pause for a few minutes just for you to meditate on that. Then finally, we're going to stand up and we're going to read it together as a church family. First, let me read this And if you would like to just either silently sit there, close your eyes, or look at the screen, or read on your Bible yourself, would you follow this with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven our debtors.
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Friends, will you uh, please either stand or if you want to sit, that's fine. And would we read this together as a church family? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we bring that before your throne of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.